0: Missed being here last week it's not the same on the internet as it is being in person and uh got to watch what went on on the internet for a little bit as long as i could felt like listening to it and uh almost got saved again brother gail after you gave that invitation i thought maybe a second or third time might work yeah didn't stick the first time it's good to see you this morning glad that you're here Today we're going to start a new series entitled Greater Things. It's a sort of a a relaunch of a series we did almost four years ago. Uh, It is a series that we began when we started focusing on our debt reduction. And uh, I think it's safe to say that our $4.4 million debt uh, that we owed to Intrust Bank is now much less than that, uh, less than half actually. And uh, so that's a good thing. And uh, some of you are going to recognize the title, Greater Things. You're automatically going to assume that this is probably a debt reduction number two. Uh, We're not building anything. We're just trying to get out from under what we were under. And it was a huge amount of debt. But the Lord's been gracious as he has used you to help us reach the plateau that we have today or the place where we are today in the idea of, of putting investment into the greater things and this is really more than just a stewardship campaign in regard to money it is a an emphasis in which we are going to be looking at our lives and sort of evaluate the lives that we have been given to live and what we've been entrusted by the Lord to make sure that we're being good stewards of the time that he has given us or allotted us in this life because we only have one life to live Uh, we don't get a second shot Unlike what Shirley MacLaine may think, you you come back in different forms and, and different shapes and other ways. You only get one shot at, and you better not blow it. And so instead of really, I wanted to sort of title this, instead of investing for eternity, I really wanted to entitle it, Don't Waste Your Life, Dummy. But uh, the finance committee and I and a couple of the other uh, pastors that chairs that's not probably a good title to put on there. Because if you waste your life, that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do because you only have one life to live. And how you live that life determines eternity. And how we live our lives impacts eternity. Not only for us personally, but also for us in the influence that God wants us to have in the world that he's placed us in. And so it's important that we understand that we're about greater things than the things of this world, that we're here for eternal things, and we should invest the lives that we've been given or entrusted by God in the eternal things, the things that really matter. And how many people reach the end of their lives and they look back in the rearview mirror only to recognize and realize, I have wasted the life that I lived And I can't imagine there's a sadder epitaph than that for someone to glance back in the rearview mirror of their life and realize and recognize I didn't live the life that I should have lived, nor did I live the life I wanted to live, much less the life that Christ wanted me to live. And I think there are many people today, as we analyze and evaluate our lives, could probably say, as we look in the rearview mirrors of our lives, that we basically have some regrets, that there are probably some things that if we could, we would do over. But when you reach the end of your life, there is no do-over. That's it. And so I want us to sort of focus our lives for a moment in these studies, in this series, that it may be sort of topical, but it will be exegetical in some text, and how we might be able not to waste the lives that God has given us. Not to live our lives for the dot, but for the bottom line. What is the bottom line? Well, if you're an accountant, the bottom line is, is the bottom line of the ledger that signifies whether you made a profit or whether you're at a loss. Right, Brother David? It's the bottom line. And when you go in for a loan and you will talk about those kinds of things, you all all they want to say, well, what's the bottom line? You know, what is the bottom line of your life? If you take a look at the word bottom line, it's interesting that I found in the Webster's Dictionary that it also says that it is the essential or the salient part, point, or it means the primary or most important consideration. So what is the bottom line, the most important consideration in your life? Does life really matter? If it really does matter, then how is your life going to matter when it comes time time for the bottom line, when it comes time for you to give an account of your life for the Lord? And many people today in the world that we live in are focused so much on the dot, the life here on earth, that they are not living the life for the purpose or the specific plan that God has for their lives. They're not living their lives for eternity. I mean, face it, the the, the the workplace that you go to, they're not much concerned about eternity, are they? And the house that you have that needs painting or the body that you may be dwelling in right now that's sick or the, the clothes that you may be wearing who are wearing out and the the children that need food and those kinds of things. And our lives get so bogged down in the the things of this earth and the necessities of life that we often spend more time spending on the life in this earth and accumulating and gathering and, and all of those things that we don't really focus on the real value and the meaning of life, which is the bottom line, which is eternity, which is heaven. And so I hope that as, as we together make this journey, that, that we'll, we'll move from the dot and we'll move toward the bottom line, meaning that we'll move toward a focus that is more of an eternal perspective rather than an earthly perspective. Next week, we're going to hand out a 40-day journal. And I, I'm going to challenge you next week to take the 40-day journal. And some of you will take it, and you'll read a couple of those and you'll throw it aside and say, no, this is, this is not what I expected. It's not what I want. And you may toss it aside. I, I know that. Or you're just going to probably maybe lose disinterest in it because uh, it's just not where you are spiritually. But I'm going to challenge you to go through these 40 days of, of this discipleship. This very, it's very short because I know some of you have short attention spans. Okay. That's not why you're here today. Some of you are thinking, I'm not feeling well, Some I'm going to be short-winded, and that's probably not going to be true. Um, it, it's short. It's, 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 it's a snippet of, of some, some things that I want you to think about and I believe are, are, are imperative for us. They're, they're strategic and important in your personal life as you seek to take the focus off of the dot and put it on the, the eternal aspect of why you were created and what God wants to purpose through your life. Don't waste your life. And I see so many people wasting their lives on the tangibles, on the things that are going to just be gone tomorrow, instead of really focusing them on the things that are really eternal. And so i want going to take a look at that text. And the, the, the theme of investing for eternity basically is it in Matthew six thirty three? is the passages on the screen it says but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you These are some words at the end of an incredible chapter in which Jesus is speaking the Sermon of the Mount. He has gathered in chapter 5 his disciples together and that's critical in understanding and interpreting the Sermon of the Mount to know that these people who are listening to Jesus speak at this moment are his disciples. Now some of them are more disciples than others and what do you mean by that? Well there are disciples that are In the inner core, they are the the twelve. They are the committed. They are the sold out. They are the the ones that we know. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the twelve. And beyond those, there are some others that I would call the core who are also totally sold out, consecrated disciples of Christ. The core. Then there's another circle around that core, which are disciples that I would call committed to the teachings and the followings of Jesus, but they're not really consecrated like the 12. They haven't forsaken everything to follow him, but they're still committed to Christ. But there's also the crowd of disciples, and those are the ones that are interested, they're curious, they're observant, they're listening, they're desires of what Jesus is saying and what he is indicating to them. And and it kind of rings a bell for them, and the lights are going on, and they hunger and thirst for it, but they haven't quite crossed the line in total sold-out commitment to Christ. As I thought about that this week, in the few moments I had to study, I, I thought about sometimes a crowd like this, how many of us are in which degree of discipleship. Those of us that are in the core, the totally committed, consecrated, sold out, 100% die if we have to for the faith. And then those of us who are, who are maybe not the core, but we are committed we're not just, we're not, we're not, we wouldn't define ourselves as fanatical maybe. But we're committed. But then how many are in the crowd? Just sort of casual observers. Wanting to pick up a nugget of information here and there that might help or improve our lives. Not really interested in really living out the faith and following Jesus. We're curious. We desire it. We want it. But we're just not quite willing nor are we ready to start a, sort of step out and, and commit our lives in a way that, that would really honor Jesus. And then, then there are some of us who probably find ourselves at different points at different times of our lives. Isn't that true? I mean, times, you know, we're really, we're really sold out and then, then we sort of back off a little bit. Maybe out of fear or maybe a lack of faith. And then sometimes we, we move back into the core. And so we, we kind of have, if we're not careful, we can move, shift from place to place at times. I think it depends on where we are spiritually. Jesus, in these words that he's giving to his disciples in this beautiful sermon on the mount, as he's talking to his disciples, is challenging them to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things, these other things that we spend most of our lives worrying about and anxious about and seeking to attain, all these other things, they'll be added unto you. He's saying, hey, live not for the dot, but live your life for the bottom line. Seek God first, and then all these other things will be added unto you. What is he really saying to us in that little small sentence? I'm going to take a look at the whole narrative in Matthew chapter 6 very quickly, but let's take a look at this one statement of Jesus, and let's look at how can we then live not for the dot, but how can we live for the bottom line? Let's take a look at that, point one. How do we live not for the dot, but for the bottom line? Number one, we need to substantiate the source We need to substantiate the source of the difficulty. Notice in the sentence, and you might overlook this little word, the word is but, and the word but is is an important word here. It means rather or it means instead of. And, And you might jump over that, but this is critical because Jesus is sort of making a turn here, He's making a shift. And he, he's, he's made some statements over here, and, and now he's about to, he said, this is how you were living, but this is the way you ought to live. And he, and he makes a turnaround, he makes a, a shift here from living one life, the life on the dot, to living the life on the bottom line, living for heaven. And we saw in chapter 6, verse 19, earlier in the text, as he's talking about how to live for the bottom line, not to live for the dot, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where heavens break in and steal. Circle that word if you want to, lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves. The idea of laying up is... Sort of a picture that he's painting here of someone who is taking their coins. You know, they didn't have paper money back then. They had coins. And the context and the idea here is that they're taking their coins and they're stacking them up for the purpose of counting them. But they're not only counting them to see how many they have, but they're counting them in order to put them in a secure place. Now, there's nothing wrong with with putting money in in a bank. There's nothing wrong with with savings. But the person is is primarily doing this for the purpose of laying up treasure for himself on this earth. The only reason he's accumulating this treasure is for his own self-worth and his own self-absorption. In other words, he's not utilizing what what God has given given him for the purpose for which God intended it to be used. You see, God doesn't bless us so that we can spend it primarily and solely on ourselves. But he gives us what we have in order to exhaust those resources for the intent and the purpose for which God intended. And Jesus is saying to them, hey, this guy is stacking it up so he can put it aside, not for the use for which God intended it, but for his own pleasure and for his own security. If you read the narrative, you see he's insane to put his security in things of this world because that's ridiculous. They fade away and they produce no security at all. He says to these also in in verse 25, you skip back down to the next next couple of verses, in the next narrative when he's talking about almost the same context, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about you. He says, let, I tell you, let not, do not, not let not, do not be anxious about you. About your life. What you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body. What you will put on. How many of you spent several, more than two minutes thinking about what you're going to put on today? How many outfits did your wives try on, ladies, uh, husbands, before your wife got to church? Never mind. But if you're... It says, it says but about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing you know the idea and we could we could we could talk a lot about that but, but here's here's the main point he's talking about people that are consumed with consumerism Of people that are consumed with consumerism they are they they want to they they are they are devoting their life to the bottom line which is possessing possessions they are possessed with possessions and that consumes them I mean the culture that we live in I've been uh, I've been sick for nine days on my back sick nine days this first day I've been vertical Uh, longer than a couple hours i got out of bed wednesday to go to the doctor and i got out of the bed i got out of the house yesterday to go to the doctor again to say i got to preach tomorrow give me something that'll make me feel better and he sent me home with nothing to make me feel better so this is the first day i've been vertical for quite some time and uh i'm just i've got a stool over here in case i can't make it and i got a drink of water back here and a bathroom right around the corner but anyway um, i have watched a lot of commercials I have watched so much TV that I am sick of TV. Holy cow. There's only so much nonsense you can put on television. and It starts to all look the same after a while. But man, when you're not feeling good and there's nothing else to do, and, and you're, you got, feel like you've got squirrels in your stomach and they're not going away, that's all you can do. And I have watched commercial after commercial after commercial after commercial. What are they saying to us? Buy, 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 consume, 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 get, 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 hoard, hoard, hoard. Over and over and over again. And we live in a culture that is so consumed with consumerism. And, and we have this drive, I think, sometimes as, as, as people and as families to have what's best for our kids and what's best for this. And wh- how, how big a house do we need? How many clothes do we need in our closet? How many shoes, ladies, do we need to wear? And how many can we wear at a time? And there are other cultures that learn to live with so much less than what we have and seem very happy and content. And yet somehow we have been consumed with consumerism. And I think that's the context of where we must start in this whole aspect of how not to waste your life is that we need to understand that that if we're not careful, we'll be be consumed by this culture that we have to consume more and more and more and more. And eventually we will waste our lives. And let me tell you where it ends up for every one of us, it ends up in a nursing home. Seriously. Seriously. I've been pastor for 36 years, and I know that at the end of my life I probably wind up in a nursing home. That's where, that's where most of us end up if we don't pass before then. And then all those things that we spent an entire lifetime trying to accumulate and to store up and to consume don't really matter, do they? And yet we exhaust our lives in the pursuit of these things. What a waste of life. The second thing I see is that we need to seek first things first. It's interesting in this text, he says, Seek, for, seek, things, seek first things first. Easy for you to say. He said, But seek first. Seek first. It's interesting in this text, the word seek, the word itself means to invest, it means to strive for. And we sang earlier this morning that it is God who seeks us out. It is God who seeks us when we're not seeking him, and he saved us. That's true. But remember, this is written to disciples. And so Jesus is speaking to those who are disciples. And he's saying that we must seek, and we are to investigate. In other words, we are the ones who are then to strive for. And in this incredible verb, this verb is in the present tense. It means that it is an act that is Presently going on. We are to presently, continuously to seek him. It is active, meaning that it is a subject, we who are the ones who are to seek. And it is, it is here imperative, meaning that it's a command. It's not a choice. So he's saying, here's the command to my disciples. Seek first. In other words, he is commanding those who want to follow him to seek first. And then he's about to give us the two things that he wants us to seek. So it's not really an option to seek first, to put the priority in your lives, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, here's your target. Here's your target. Here's your goal. Here's the bottom line. Here's the finish line. He paints a picture for them of, of this is what success is. This is arrival. Here's your target. Now what's wrong with that? Sometimes we're not looking at the right target. And if we're not focused on the right target, we're not looking at the right finish line. If we're not setting the right goals, we waste our lives. That's why he says in verse 22 in chapter 6 earlier in the verse when he's talking to disciples he said the eye is the lamp of the body so if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness and if then the light is in, in is darkness in you is darkness how great is the darkness. He's saying here that it's all in the eye it's all in where we're looking it all is, is what we're allowing into our lives if we're not focused on the target I mean when you're playing baseball what's the one number one thing if you've ever coached little league baseball what do you keep telling the guys all the time the whole time during the league what is it keep your eye on the ball why is that dude you're going to get hit right because you never know when the ball's going to be. And you got that one little kid out there just kind of playing around in, the, you know, in second base. And before you know it, he gets hit. If, there's, if there's somebody's trying to bat and you don't have your eye on the ball, you can't hit the ball. You've know, you got to keep your eye on the ball. And Jesus is saying here, guys, you got to keep your eye on the ball. You've got to keep your eye on the prize. You've got to keep your eye on the target. And the fact is that there's so many distractions in the life that we live. And they want to keep our, hey, look over here. And we look over here. One of the commercials that's talking about the greatest, I can't remember who it was, but the greatest, the oldest trick in the book. Who is that? Huh? Geico? And uh, he said, the, oh, and the guy said, Look, us, look, us over here, look over there. He said, May thou look, ha, you know. I mean, that's the world, though, isn't it? Look over here. 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 And they're constantly striving for our attention. And Jesus said, No, keep your focus, keep your eye on the ball. What's your target? What's the objective of your life? What do you want the end to look like? Write out your funeral service today what you want them to say at your funeral service and then live out that life now. This says, for the Gentiles seek after these things. You know, the world that we live in seeks so many different things. Not all of them are bad. Not all of them are harmful. Some of them are no good at all. It is not what we should be focused on. Number three, we need to secure the kingdom perspective. To secure a kingdom perspective. It's interesting. He said, seek now first. What? The first thing is is the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Secure a kingdom perspective. He says, seek first what? The kingdom of God. Kingdom is an interesting thing, an interesting concept. What really blew the minds of the religious elite is they thought Jesus had come to set up a kingdom in this earth, but he did not in the sense that he didn't come, up, came, come to, send, to set up a kingdom that was uh, uh, much like a king reigning on a throne in Jerusalem like they thought, but he did come to set up a kingdom in which he would reign and rule in the hearts and the lives of men and women and boys and girls who would place their faith and trust in him as their Savior and Lord. And the whole narrative, the whole Sermon on the Mount, beginning with chapter 5, is all about the kingship of Jesus. Jesus now is presenting himself as the king and he's setting up his kingdom and he's giving to those who are his loyal subjects the the standard or the measure of truth by which they're to live by, beginning in Matthew chapter 5. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about him saying, hey, those of you who are my loyal and faithful subjects, here is how now we are to set up our kingdom and how we are to, to live. And so in essence, he's saying then, seek First, the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom. And the kingdom that he's talking about here is the reign of God, the reign of Christ in our lives. His authority. His rulership. In other words, if we are to seek anything in our lives, we are to seek his authority in our lives above and beyond anything and anyone. He's to be number one. His will, his way, his purpose, his plan, his objectives, his goal for our lives are the number one things. Everything else takes a back seat. To seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of God. That means to put him Lord in every aspect of our lives. That seems so simplistic, doesn't it? I mean, how many of us have sat through message after message and Bible study after Bible study where someone has said, he needs to be Lord, he needs to be Lord. And we say, "Yay, man, he needs to be Lord. But really, is he Lord? And we've heard that and we say, yeah, he needs to be Lord. And no, he's not Lord. And we walk out and we do nothing about it. And then we wonder why we waste our lives. Because the only way our lives won't be lost, wasted, is to make him Lord. Where his will, and where his rule, and where his authority, and his kingdom become our priority. I mean, that's the reason we're here, is to put him first. Look at chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. It's interesting when he's teaching his disciples to pray early on. He says, pray then like this. How are we to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does he say your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we to be praying about. We should be praying that his kingdom will come. How much and how many of our prayers in which we are praying for God's kingdom to come. I mean what our prayers feel like. Lord, we're praying for Aunt Sissy's hangnail on her toenail that's hurting today. It's not that God doesn't care about that. He does. But I'm wondering how much of our praying is not praying for the kingdom of, of God to come. To pray that his kingdom come in us, that, Lord, I'm praying that your lordship, that your reign and your rule would be so preeminent in my life that I am consumed by you. And that, Lord, your reign and your authority in our church is consumed by you. That Lord, our city, Wichita, and our state of Kansas, that your kingdom would come because there are millions of boys and girls, men and women who have yet to place their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. In chapter 6, verse 20, notice he says, But lay up for yourselves where? Treasures in heaven. Where are treasures? Don't lay them on earth. Where we lay up treasures in heaven. You know, this is for those of you who say, what's the payoff? What's the reward? What do I get in return? I mean, it sounds almost charismatic Pentecostal. You know, you, you give and then you receive. And I know I have a little bit of issue with that in regard to my theological position on giving in order to receive, but this is an interesting verse in which Jesus is saying that we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. What, what's the reward of making him Lord of your life? What's the reward of him reigning and ruling and him being the authority? What, what do I gain? What do I benefit when I follow him? Everything. It's interesting, when I give, I receive. When I die, I live. That, that's, that's the, 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 the str- strangest about this Christian life, isn't it? It's, it doesn't make sense to the world that we live in. What do you mean to die so that you can live? Give so you can receive? Follow and you'll be blessed? But there's sacrifice, there's commitment, there's, there's things that, yeah, but in, in, there are going to be rewards, People. And with every act and with every gift and with every action and with every, everything, we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Now the motive is everything because he says at the end of that verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Make sure your heart is right. You're doing it out of love and out of passion, not just to receive. But when we give for the right motive and in the right way, according to the will and the plan of the person of God, there's always incredible rewards and benefits for what we we render to Him. And the interesting thing about it is, the rewards that He gives are not earthly rewards, they're eternal rewards. So I ask you, what rewards, let's, let's say, what bank account will you be taking to heaven with you today? I've never seen... I've never seen a hearse, uh, and, and with a hearse, there's a U-Haul trailer on it. I've never seen anybody buried with a bunch of possessions. Most of the time, relatives are taken off the possessions before the, the body is laid into the, into, the, into the ground. You don't take anything with you in this life that's from this world. Nothing. What do you take to heaven? Eternal rewards. So why are we spending so much of our lives spending, spending for, for things that are going to fade away and, and, and blow away and, and other people will have, rather than investing our lives for eternal rewards that we're going to take with us? How much, how much time are you going to spend on this Earth? How many of you expect to live 90 years old? 90. Anybody expect anybody want to live to be 90? Right? Anybody got some? How many expect to live to 100? All right. How many? 120. Anybody more than 120? 120 is a long one. How many years are you going to live in heaven? How long? Forever. So you spend 120 years of your life accumulating all this stuff. So when you die, your relatives fight over it. And when you get to heaven, you didn't take anything with you. What's the sense in that? Why would you waste your life? You're going to live a lot more than 120 years in heaven. You're going to live forever. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? For me to think about the bottom line, eternity, rather than the dot, the now, the earth, this moment, this life, being so self-absorbed with what I want and me, doesn't it make sense? So we need to have a kingdom perspective. Number four, we need to have a single master. We need to submit to a single master. Notice it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness is his righteousness and the only righteousness that we need in order to be saved. No one can make you right with God except Christ. Ephesians chapter, chapter 4 tells us that. I mean, Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 tells us that. We're saved by grace through faith and that is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God and that no one could boast, right? And when we come to faith in Christ, we come empty-handed. There's no work that we can do in order to be saved. He said place our faith and trust in him and his righteousness and once we get saved he positions us in the righteousness of Christ and now he redeems us and he reconciles us to God and now we have a right relationship with the Father through Jesus not something that we did but something that he did it's a gracious gift that he gives us this beautiful standing of righteousness before a a righteous God that demands righteousness from those who stand before him but yet after we're saved remember he's talking to disciples after we're saved and we're standing on his righteousness does that mean we don't have to be righteous anymore in romans chapter 6 and we studied that a couple of years ago paul says should we go on sinning so that grace could abound and paul said by no means absolutely not for those of us who are standing in the righteousness of Christ should be concerned about now continuing in that righteousness. And that's what Jesus is saying here almost to the latter. He's saying here, he says it, notice he says in verse 24 of chapter 6, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. That's pretty hard words, isn't it? Jesus is saying to his disciples here that we need to seek holiness. We're not only to seek heaven, but we're to seek holiness. In other words, we're to live a holy life. We are forgiven. And and even though we cannot, in this life, live perfect, sin-free lives, it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility that we have to live righteously, to live holy, to live godly, to live as children of the King, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus was righteous. He was holy. He was perfect in every way, which enabled him to be the, the sacrificial lamb on the altar of Calvary for us, where he took upon himself our sin. And if we're to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we're to follow in His righteousness, to seek to be holy as He is holy. And yet today I find many, many people so distracted with this concept of holiness, righteousness. and either redefining what God has said as unholy, to be holy, or redefining what God said was holy to be unholy. We have to be very careful. With the words of Jesus. You can't serve two masters. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Notice what happens last. We need to show uncompromising trust in God. To show uncompromising trust in God. It's interesting in the text, Jesus says, and all these things will be added unto you all these things what does all mean all 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 inclusive a-l-l all notice he says these things i don't know about you but my first antenna goes up what things i'm gonna get some things it's kind of like christmas he's promised me some things what are the things that i'm gonna get the things he described earlier we're gonna read them in a minute But notice all these things will be added. That's one word in the original language, will be added. It's interesting. And I I didn't want to forget this. Didn't have enough time to, to really internalize this the way I wanted to today. But this is what I want to say here. Listen to this incredible word, all these things. This is one word in the Greek. Notice what it says. First of all, this verb is active. Why is that important? The only reason I tell you this because I think it's important. It's active because it is an act or state of being that will occur in the future. It will occur in the future. Okay? It's active. It is a state or an act of being that will occur in the future. Maybe not today, but in the future. Some of well, when am I going to get these things? He doesn't promise when. He just promises you will. You will. Notice also in the original text, in the Greek, it is passive, this verb. It's passive. Why is that important? Because the passive means that the subject is being acted upon. In other words, you don't have to produce it. Does that mean I not have to go to work tomorrow morning? It's President's Day. If you got the day off, don't go to work. But I would suggest tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, you go to work because if you don't work, you won't get paid. And if you don't get paid, you won't pay your bills. And uh, pretty soon, uh, you'll be in trouble. But that's not the context here. It means that God is going to be acting on your behalf. It is subject, the subject is, is the recipient of what God is providing. In other words, God will provide for us. If we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he will provide for us. But notice also it's indicative. It's an, act, an act is stated as presented as real. These are the words of Jesus. This is an act that is presented as if it is real. It's already a reality. It is portrayed as actuality. It is something as actual as opposed to something that is contingent or something that is even possible. It's one thing to think, well, it's possible, but that's not what we're saying here. It's not possible. It's already actual. It's factual. He will, in the future, he will add these things to who? To you. Not just Anybody, but to those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If we, that's the promise, if we seek first his righteousness and his kingdom, the kingdom of God, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. So that's a beautiful promise. Let's look at the narrative in chapter 6. I want you to open your Bible because I couldn't put it all on the screen. Uh, Chapter 6 of Matthew. You had to get your Bibles out this morning for just a minute. And I know it's a little dark in here, but I'm going to read this narrative. And I, there's, there's just, and we're going to close with this. Matthew 6. Beginning with verse 26. I'm reading from the ESV version of this translation of the text, but notice what it says. Look at the birds of the air. <laughs> I'm thinking of Angela, you had a, something on your desk this morning when I walked by. What did it say? There's places for the birds. I have an assistant who uh, uh, she loves birds, and uh, anyway, it's not very manly. It makes me want to get my BB gun and go in there and do some shooting. But anyway, it says, "Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap." nor gather into barns. They don't hoard anything. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Who feeds them? Who? The heavenly father feeds the birds. Are you not more of value than they? That's a question. Are you not more of value than they? What's the answer to that? Duh. Absolutely. If God's going to feed the dumb birds, he'll feed you. So what are you stressed out about? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field. Let's read that again. But if God so clothed the grass of the field... Which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven for fire, will he not much more clothe you? I don't really like this statement because it says, O oh, you of little faith. You know why I don't like it? It's too convicting, isn't it? O oh, ye of little faith. Why don't we worry about stuff? Why don't we get anxious about stuff? Because we have little faith. But he just told us who our heavenly father was and what he could do. So why do we keep worrying? Why are we anxious? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? The last part of verse uh, 32 And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly father knows that you need them all. He knows what you need. Let me say that again. He knows what you need. One more time. He knows what you need. Really? Yeah. Well, why didn't he give it to me? Well, maybe you're asking for things you don't need. Well, wait a minute. No. He just said he'd give you what you needed. I think sometimes our wants are bigger than our needs. Sometimes our wants are not our needs. Sometimes his purpose is not our purpose and his plan is not our plan. I can tell how many times I asked God in the last nine days to make me better and he didn't. There must have been a purpose for it. Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Hmm. I want to end with something kind of funny, lighten it up a little bit. A young woman brings home her fiancé to meet her parents. After dinner, her mother tells her father to find out more about the young man, and the father invites the fiancé into his study. So, what are your plans? The father asks the young man. Well, I'm a Bible scholar, he replies. A Bible scholar? Hmm, the father says. Admirable. But what will you do to provide a nice house for my daughter to live in as she's accustomed to? I will study, the young man replies, and God will provide for us all. And how will you buy her a beautiful engagement ring such as she deserves? asks the father. I will concentrate on my studies, the young man replies, and God will provide for us. And children, asks the father, how will you support children? Don't worry, sir, God will provide, replies the fiance. The conversation proceeds like this. And each time the father questions, the young idealist insists that God will provide. And the mother asks, well, how did it go, honey? The father replies, he has no job and no plans. But the good news is he thinks I'm God. Obviously, that's not the right perspective, is it? Is it naive to believe that God will provide? Is it naive to believe that God will meet your needs? And here's the final question as we close. Will you live your life for the dot or for the bottom line? Don't waste your life. You only have one life to live. And some of us have spent far too much time living life on the dot for this earth, for this life being self-absorbed rather than living life for the bottom line. And my desire and my hope is that none of us in this study will look back in the rearview mirror of our lives as we're listening to others give off our epitaph saying that we, we didn't make the most of the life that God gave us. And we only have one life to live. And I don't know about you, but I want to live it well. I want to live it for eternity I want to take every moment, every time, every life every thought, every breath every ounce of energy, every resource that I have and invest it in eternal rewards not earthly treasures that fade away and are left when I depart but that I think is how the disciples of Christ must live let's pray